I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, where we will read verses 8 through 23. Philippians 4, verse 8. Everybody ready? Okay, let's read. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at last, your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, in whatever state I am, to be content I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you, Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia... No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that is the book of Philippians. For those of you not keeping track, we began the book of Philippians in July of last year. And I do want to take a minute here as we close the book uh, just to thank uh, Marty, Marty Klein, for all of the work that he does faithfully preparing uh, the sermons uh, for the internet every week. I'll say that Marty's been doing this now for many years, and I know it's a a time sacrifice. And so to Marty and Caitlin and the, the little kids in the middle there who who give uh, some of their dad's time in the afternoons. Uh, let me say on behalf of everybody who benefits from it, thank you, Marty. I'll say because of Marty's work, we have uh, the books of Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Philippians, 1 Corinthians, Philemon, and the Gospel of Matthew covered in fullness on our website and on our podcast. And uh, various other subjects mixed in there that we detoured from those books over the last 10 years are accessible on the Internet. Um, we have also uh, have uh, many sermons from my dad who preached before I did uh, on the internet. Uh, those of you who want to go back to the good old days uh, can go back as far as 2009 online. Uh, most of John's gospel is on there. There are other books of the Bible. 
that are in those sermons as well. So again, I, I know it's not something we often do, but I did want to take a minute here and thank Marty for helping us complete another book in that way. Thank you, Marty. Now, as we close Philippians today, we will look at the text before us in three sections. Three sections. The first section we will call their gift. Their gift, for those of you taking notes. The second section we will call contentment. In section three, we will call an approach to the world. And I don't want to confuse anyone, so I will tell you up front that we are not going to take these verses in order. If you were looking at the text wondering how do we get one, two, three out of that order of the verses, we are going to save the opening verses of the text this morning, verses eight and nine to the end. So don't be alarmed. I am not skipping anything, just adjusting the order slightly for the sake of flow. So section one, the gift, the gift. Paul acknowledges in verses 10, as well as verses 14 through 18, that the Philippians had given him a financial gift. You will remember, I'm sure, that Paul himself is in Rome. He is under house arrest, which is not as bad as being in a dungeon. There were freedoms involved with it, but he is nevertheless attached, if not physically chained, to someone who is one of Caesar's men, one of Caesar's guards, Rome being the capital, Caesar being uh, the great emperor there. And having appealed to Caesar, he was under the guard of Caesar's troops. However, as a Roman citizen uh, under arrest, the financial burden of his daily needs were not the government's problem. They were Paul's problem, which is different from our modern government. Uh, so it was expected of Paul that there would be some provision made for him uh, on behalf of him. The Philippians have sent Paul a financial gift to assist him during this difficult part of his life. And we talked about all that when we covered chapter 2 a few months ago. Verse 10 says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, which means they had previously been supporters of Paul's ministry, as he goes on to say, but for a time, their support had not reached him. He says in verse 10, though surely you did care, but you lacked opportunity. That could have been they didn't have the resources to give or you know, in the ancient world, with, without the, the benefits of modern technology, they just did not have a method of getting a gift to Paul while on his various journeys. So he's not saying, hey guys, thanks for caring about me again. He's saying, I know you've always cared for me, but I was very happy. It caused me to rejoice to see that your care is expressed in this gift, which you've been able to send. That's verse 10. So Paul has received this from the church from Epaphrodite's uh, visit. Now, verses 11 through 13, we notice a few things about this gift. Um, 11 through 13 in a minute, 14 through 18. Look at verse 14. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. So we're going to make three quick observations from this. One, the Philippians have done well. And I think we can observe from that, it is good that they have given something to support Paul in this. There's no, maybe you've done well, or perhaps you've done well. This is a good thing. Their gift is good. Verse 15 says, You Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, except for you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And then here in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So the first observation is he says, this is good, that you've given a gift. Second thing he says here, 
is that because of their giving, fruit has abounded to their account. And I find those three words interesting. Fruit, meaning profit, has increased, abounded to their account. Paul is envisioning a record of sorts that is being kept, some sort of heavenly accounting here of what the Philippians are doing. And their gift of money, he says, has actually been profitable in that accounting. We know what accounting is. Accounting is keeping track, keeping records, and he envisions that that is happening in heaven with the Philippians and that their contribution has actually been profitable to this account. It's as if each of us are being watched as Christians. Let me be very clear about that. In order to open an account in the heavenly rewards sector, you must be a Christian. If you are not a Christian, I deliver the very bad news today that your account is red. It is in the deficit. There is a collection that will be made when you die. You are under the debt of sin. But excellent news for us Christians, as well as those who are unbelievers today, Jesus has paid the debt of our sin. And if you will, by faith, entrust your life to Him, your debt will be wiped away. Until you believe in Jesus, until you become what we call a Christian, a servant of Christ, no amount of works will save you. The only accounting of your works will lead to damnation as your sin piles up in a ledger. It is only faith that saves, as we read in Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, and then very specifically, not of works. It is folly, as we know, as believers, to think that we can somehow do enough good to overcome what we have done bad. If such were the case, then Jesus Christ died in vain. For I might as well have saved myself by doing enough good things. But it is not the case. Jesus did not die in vain. He died to pay a debt that I could not pay. He rose to life to give me an eternal inheritance. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you to give your life to Jesus by faith today. But if you are a Christian, we are told in that same chapter, Ephesians 2, that as a new spiritual creature, a Christian person is created for good works in Jesus Christ. In other words, before your works were not beneficial, but as a Christian, now you've been actually created for these good works. And here Paul is saying there is an accounting of those works that's underway in heaven. This is clarified also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul writes... There is no other foundation that anyone can lay for themselves except Jesus Christ, which is what I just said. Unless you are a Christian, you're not building on anything that's going to last. So, But if you are a Christian, if anyone builds on this foundation, this is 1 Corinthians 3.12, with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. There's a counting of the work that we do as Christians. He says it's going to become clear whether you have done well with the work of your life or not well, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. Again, the metaphor is of a house 
And of course, if you build a house with wood, hay, and stubble and light it on fire, there will be a, a great inflammation. There will be a, it will not go well. But if you build a house with precious metals and precious stones, even once the things that piece it together are burnt up, uh, what remains will be that which fire doesn't destroy. Gems and metals and precious things. That's the metaphor here. He clarifies in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 3, which he says, If anyone's work, work, which he has built on it endures, if it survives that test, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as through fire. Why is he himself saved, even though he wasted his Christian life? Because he is a Christian. And his salvation is not dependent upon his works, but upon his faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, he will suffer loss as someone who realizes that they have squandered the good work of God in their life and not performed the will of God to the extent that might merit heavenly reward. For the Christian, then, there is an accounting of good works by which we will be rewarded, not condemned, rewarded accordingly. And Paul says this financial gift from the Philippians is profitable to their account. Some translations say will be credited to their account, and that's the meaning of it. It's true. Two quick observations about that. Someone might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Because then people with money will be able to get more reward. More people with more money, more giving, more reward. And let me say, no, sir. That is not how it works. As the widow with two mites puts them into the temple coffers, the Lord Jesus says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all. Two little mites, two less than the equivalent of pennies. For these have all given out of their abundance, And they've put in offerings to God, but she out of her poverty has put in all the livelihood that she had. So the heavenly accounting of our giving looks beyond the sheer value or volume of what we do into the true sacrifice required in the gift itself. This is why Jesus did not command the rich young ruler, go and give two mites and then come follow me. But instead he says, go and sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and come follow me. It is not the volume. Which brings me to the second quick observation here in that passage. He tells that rich young ruler, sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Not you might. You will. So while the accounting of such giving is measured in terms of the personal cost and sacrifice. The principle of the matter is sound. If you will have treasure in heaven, one very clear way for the Christian to please the Lord is to give sacrificially, financially, and to that I will add, a giver must have the right heart, which goes back to God's accounting, for he knows what's in the heart of a man. 2 Corinthians 9 6 and 7. If you don't know that passage, you might write the reference down. It is both encouraging and convicting. It says, Those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully. Don't think that the Lord is stingy in His reward. But rather in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, we read, The Lord loves 
a cheerful giver. And we read here in verse 18 in our text today, the last verse 18 in this little section. Indeed, I have all and I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You see, the Philippians might have thought that they were sending a gift to Paul. But their money was miraculously converted, perhaps unbeknownst to them, into a sacrifice in the throne room of God. And when the Lord smelled the incense of their sacrifice, he was, according to Paul, pleased with the Philippians. And I will add this so many times. I have spoken with people who are concerned that the Lord is not pleased with them. Oh, I'm not doing well. I'm really concerned about my relationship with God. I'm afraid God is not very happy with me right now. Well, here we see in this that when Christian people give sacrificially in faith with a cheerful heart, not only is that giving credited to their heavenly account, which, let me add here, that's not monopoly money. When we talk about heavenly reward, we are not talking about monopoly money. We're not talking about make-believe money. It is real. I am heavily invested in heavenly reward. God is not running some fraudulent hedge fund or some, some cryptocurrency exchange, as we read about in the news today, whereby he takes and takes and takes and will only give fairy tale money sparingly someday in the future. The same all-powerful God that I have entrusted my soul with, the souls of my children, the soul of my wife, I entrust all of my future eternal heavenly prosperity to. Even at great temporal financial cost to me now, I give cheerfully to the Lord. Because this is not fairy tale money that I'm investing in with God. And back to my point, not only is it credited to the very real heavenly accounting, but when I give sacrificially, cheerfully, obediently, I may know God is pleased with it. God is pleased. We spend a lot of time thinking about the things in our life that God is not pleased with. Be encouraged when you give sacrificially to the Lord. Your father is pleased. Give cheerfully. Give with the right heart. Give sacrificially. Knowing that God is pleased. I think I do quite enough in my life for the Lord not to be pleased with. His mercies are new every morning. I am happily content to know that there are some things I do that please him. And that is section one this morning on the Philippians gift. The application being give to the Lord. Give to the Lord, take up the Lord's challenge in Malachi 3.10, take it up as a personal motto, let me try to outgive God and see if His blessing is faithful, take up the promise of 2 Corinthians 9.6, and see if by sowing richly we reap bountifully in heaven, I assure you, and I am speaking as a Christian to Christians, you will not be displeased with the great rewards given by the King of Kings. 
Section two now, contentment. Contentment. This is verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Now, just pause. Let me offer a little caution here. Many of us would say with Paul, me too. I have had times in my life when I had very little. And I have had times in my life when I've had a lot. So I'm right there with Paul. That is not what Paul is saying. It is true, Paul does appear to have experienced times of great need and times of great abundance. But when he says that he has learned something and he is speaking spiritually here as a Christian, he has learned to be content. And be careful before you raise your hand quickly and say, me too. When he says, I know how to be abased, which some translations say in need or get along with little, when he says that, he does not merely mean, I have had poverty in my life before. He is saying, I know how to be content in poverty. Again, verse 11, this is something he says he has learned. You may have learned that. You may be in the process of learning that, or you may not have learned it yet. Conversely, he says, I have learned how to be content when I have plenty. You may know what it is like to have little. You may know what it is like to have plenty. It's very likely that with all of us gathered here tomorrow, we have experienced something on the spectrum of both extremes. But that does not mean that we have all learned to be content in either situation, which is what Paul is claiming. That, my friends, is something entirely different. There are very poor people who learn how to get by without much money who are absolutely not content. And there are very rich people who learn how to handle and manage their wealth who are absolutely not content. And when we say content, Paul offers an explanation in the second half of verse 12. Now look what he says. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now here is what I think he is saying in that famous verse, Philippians 4.13. Christ has rendered both my want and my abundance insignificant to the work of my life. I'll say that again and you can chew on it. Christ has rendered both my want and my abundance insignificant to the work of my life. I think this is the true meaning of Philippians 4.13. In the context of the chapter, Paul is not saying, I can go and accomplish anything that I set my mind to or anything that I'd like to do because Jesus is on my side. It's not what he's saying. I would not call that a very Christian sentiment without a whole bunch of qualifiers. What you may want to accomplish in your life may not be what God wants you to accomplish in your life. But rather, when Paul says he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, the all things of Philippians 4.13 is the same as the all things of Philippians 4.12. 
See, all things is there too. In the previous verse where he says that in all things he has learned both to be full and to be hungry. In other words, what God has called him to do with his life, Christ will provide for. With that, we must look ahead to verse 19 where he tells the Philippians themselves, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And I will say again, what God has called him to do, Christ will provide for. There is not a single thing that the Apostle Paul has been commissioned to do by God that he will not be able to do because of material need. No, he can do all things because, verse 19, God shall supply all of his need. Brothers and sisters, that is the heart of contentment. Hear me now. I think this is important. You cannot separate the issue of contentment from the things that you want to do in your life. Say that again. You cannot separate the issue of contentment from the things that you want to do in your life. Someone might say, I'm content. I'm a content person. I have my bowl of chips and I'm in my recliner <laughs> and I've got the football game on and I've got everything I need. I'm content. But a life of watching television is beneath us as Christians. We should want to do more than that. <laughs> That's not the kind of contentment that we're looking for. Another person might say, I, I just cannot be content until, and you fill in a blank. And for all of us at different stages in life, it'll be married. It'll be different. Until I get married, until I have kids, or until I've saved enough, or until I've done enough, or until I've seen this, or until... I mean, you fill in the blank. I mean, your variables are as good as mine. But that is no more from God than the first person's view of life and contentment. In order to learn contentment, as Paul has learned contentment, we must have a godly view of the work we are doing for the Lord. And then, by faith, we may believe that He will provide for all of that work to be done. Because it's His work. We are just, as Ephesians 2 said, his craftsmanship. We are his hands and feet, if you will. It's God's work. If it's God's work, he's going to provide for it to get done. By faith, I can just stay at it. We are the craftsmanship of the Almighty God. If I am primarily concerned with being used by God to accomplish his work, I may have great confidence that he will supply all my need, and I will know what Paul is telling me that he has learned here, true contentment. Third section, an approach to the world. An approach to the world. Now we go back to those ones I skipped over, verses 8 and 9. You can wrestle with this one. I did. I feel comfortable with where I settled. You wrestle with it too. Verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble... 
whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, let me be faithful here and give you a very brief descriptor, just one line on each word. When he says, whatever things are true, that's a speech phrase. So he's talking about honest, the opposite of a lie. Whatever things are noble, he's talking about things that are worthy of respect. That's the idea behind the word noble here. He uses the word just. It's a moral justice, like being right, morally right. There's the word pure, which means uncontaminated, in this sense, by evil, we assume. The word lovely, which is a broad word. It could describe everything from a symphony that we listen to or something that we observe in nature around us. It's very subjective. Finally, he mentions things of good report, of virtue. This is the idea of moral excellence. He concludes with anything praiseworthy, worthy of celebrating, worthy of praising. So what Paul is saying, I think, is that there is a very big world out there. And in our lives, we will encounter a wide diversity of stuff from feelings and relationships to texts and books and writings and music, activities, accomplishments, nature, we will encounter all sorts of things. And he gives us here categories by which we may evaluate the things that we encounter in the world around us. And some people say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about this. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. The Bible doesn't say anything about this. I understand. Instead here, we have categories by which we may evaluate the world around us. Is it pure? Is it worthy of respect? Is it lovely? And he doesn't set himself up as the judge of everything that we're going to encounter in the world. Instead, he calls on us to exercise discernment, discretion, thinking. He says here, meditate on these things. Literally, think on these things. Now, this instruction will come as no surprise to all of you because for many years now, we have been saying that the Christian faith is a thinking person's faith. It is a thoughtful endeavor. We are not gathering together and mindlessly chanting rhetoric. When I stand up here and speak, God's word is engaging our minds and you are thinking for yourselves. Hopefully under the leadership of the Holy Spirit is what he says true, is what he says right. Is the word of God being applied rightly in my own life? This is a thinking person's faith. We are not interested in mindless religion. And he doesn't say, hey, when you find something lovely in life, just go do it with all your heart, which is a trap that many of us fall into. He doesn't say, just go enjoy all of these things as much as you can. He says, when you find something that seems good, think about it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Does he mean to exercise caution? Or does he mean to think about it because it's lovely? Does he mean to think about what makes it lovely? Does he mean to appreciate it? Does he mean you should celebrate it? Maybe all of those things. 
I don't know where your thoughts are going to lead you. But if your thinking, if your discernment is governed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, I have great confidence that God will help you. You may find things that at first appear lovely and great and then turn out to be evil masters. <laughs> think, think, think. That's what we're called to do. This is a call to be thoughtful and be mindful. But then look at verse 9. It's a different call. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. See the difference? <laughs> You're going to find lots of things in the world. Some of them may be good. Think about those things. But when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the Word, when it comes to our great Father, when it comes to Christian conduct, do these things. Do them. And if you take this approach, he says, God will help you, end of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. That's how we approach the world as Christians. We filter what we see and know and encounter through what God's word has said, these different categories, these different ways of evaluating. Is this pure? Is this good? Is this right? Should I be putting this in my mind? Should this occupy my thoughts? Should this occupy my time? And we think and we discern and we work. The things we know from God we're supposed to do. Those things we do. And we pray for God's help. Help me God. I don't want to mess this up. An approach to life. Filter your attention to what is good. That's probably a daily thing for all of us. Filter your attention. What you think about. To what is good. Do. What we've been told to do. Rely on God's help. That's simple and powerful counsel. Now, as we conclude, I just want to read verses 20 through 23 without teaching. This is Paul's closing. We'll read them and then we will pray. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Paul is a missionary, even in chains. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you deserve all honor and glory. For the giving of your word, for the giving of your son, for the revealing of your plan, plan of redemption in our lives, for calling us and seeking us as true worshipers, for granting us faith to make it through the difficulties of our sin and our guilt, but also the day-to-day -day circumstances that occupy our life and time. Father, with regards to what we have read and considered this morning, I pray that you will help us to be learning contentment. It's such a process. Our circumstances are constantly changing around us, sometimes very slowly and sometimes dramatically. And yet the fight to be content to do what you have called us to do is a difficult thing to learn. And I thank you for your great patience with us as we learn more about ourselves and the different circumstances we face in our lives. I thank you for not condemning us when we get this wrong. 
for not rejecting us because of our ingratitude or because for a time in our lives we take the wrong approach to something, but, but being faithful as a father to teach, to instruct, to discipline. You are very good, very patient. By your mercy, we are not consumed. Help us, Father, to seek heavenly reward, to give generously, not as unto men, but unto you. With a cheerful heart, by faith offering these things which are pleasing to you, not because of the people or a church that might benefit from it, but because of who you are in the giving of these things. I do ask, Father, that you will help us to be wise, to be good stewards of what you've given us, to not let you down. I thank you for your faithfulness, providing for our own families. I ask, Father, that you'll help us to know you more closely in our giving. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.